Welcome to Crisis and Victory, a show where I have conversations with healthcare practitioners, patients, and caregivers on the challenges that they've faced in the realm of health and illness and find out how they've gotten through it. My guest today is a delivery nurse who works at a busy hospital managing some of the highest risk births and pregnancies. I don't know about you, but for the majority of my life, I've been pretty ignorant of the process of pregnancy, birth, and its aftermath. Even though this process is the reason we're all here, I didn't really know much about what it takes to bring a baby into this world and the toll it has on the mother. So today, I'm going to chat with my guest about what it's like being in the room while it all happens. My guest is one of the warmest and kindest people I know. When thinking about the first guest of this podcast, I knew it had to be her because of her patience, her humor, and the way she's able to take the truly remarkable events she sees in her work and distill it down with empathy and insight. As always, names and identifiers have been removed to respect the privacy of the guest. This show and its topics are not intended to be, nor are they, medical advice. Finally, This episode features discussions on pregnancy loss and birth trauma. If you're affected by these topics, please feel free to stop the show at any time or skip this episode entirely. Now, on to the interview. Well, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. We've talked a lot about, well, you've come over to hang out and I'm like, hey, you know, what was was your work like? (laughs) Yeah. Awful. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how traumatic that last shift was. How many bottles of wine have you had? Oh, yeah. Let's jump in. Do you think your work makes you drink more? Yes. Yeah? It has. Yeah. I wasn't a huge drinker to begin with, kind of throughout like early 20s. And I drink almost every day on my days off. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and you think that is related to? The stress. The stress of work. It's like a nice wind down. But it's also something that I look forward to on my days off because on the days that you work, you don't drink. Um, just working 12 hours, you don't have time, nor should you drink. And then on your days off, it's just a nice way to unwind in the evening right. time. Especially the, like I work nights, just nights. So the day I come off nights, that's what I look forward to. And is it you come home from the shift and you're like, all right, I'm going to have a glass of wine. And- I wake up, do some errands, maybe go for a run. And then that's like, you know, five o'clock. Okay, I can have a glass of wine. I can have a beer. And I feel like I'm lucky in my life to be able to talk to certain people. Um, it kind of help me get through a tough time at work or, you know, if I'm kind of feeling down. So I have a, a good community around me as well. And you can, you're, you have that community to lean on. Totally. It's getting too tough rather than, oh, I'll lean on to this thing that could. Yeah. Right. This bottle of wine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I feel like I try to give that to people too. Like a lot of my friends are in healthcare and a lot of my friends are nurses and I try to be that person for them too, like a phone call away, a text away, you know, you're having a hard shift. Tell me about it. How can I be there to support you? Do you think that's part of the reason why people are leaving? I know what we talked about was the majority of the people that I know who are still nurses yeah, uh, or who were nurses have left. Yeah. So many, there's been a mass exodus lately in the last little bit, burnout huge right now. I'm especially like post COVID and and work has been so stressful the last couple of years. And it feels like people are just getting sicker and people are leaving. You know, it's like, why am I putting my body and my mind through this level of stress? And you add shift work on to top of that as well. You know, people are going where they have stable hours, not working shift work, or they might be going travel nursing where they can make more money. Leaning yeah. into it more and yeah, exactly. kind of cashing out a little bit. And then, yeah. right, while well, they still can. Yeah. So, and you said you've been seeing people get sicker. Yeah, I just feel like moms are getting sicker, babies are getting sicker, and I don't know like how truthful that is, but it just seems like people are getting sicker. Right. Yeah, and there's more, there's just sicker people out there that need help, which is more stressful. Way more stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And we're constantly short-staffed, constantly Mm -hmm. short-staffed, so there's not that support to help with all these sick people or with the level of people that need to be seen, whether that's in labor and delivery, the ER on medical units. It just feels like we're constantly short-staffed right now and we don't have the nurses to help. I think the next kind of year, once we've gotten kind of over this hump of the pandemic, it's going to be really kind of interesting to see what happens with our healthcare system. Seeing what the damage was really like. Yeah. And there's been like a lot of damage and there's been, it needs a lot of work. And I think It'll be interesting how much um, work is actually put into the system. So night shifts, 
When do you get home then? So I work 7.15 to 7.15. I get home, I bike home, um, and I usually get home about 8, sometimes 8.30, depending on when I get off if like work's pretty busy. Um, and I'm usually sleeping by 9 a.m. Um, and on the days I work, I usually wake up about 5. And the days I don't work again, I usually wake up about like 2. So, and you're working, what, like, is it four days on, four days, like? I'm casual, so it's kind of everywhere, but I try to do three nights at a time. Okay. So, like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You have this casual position. Is that your preference to, like, or how long until you can get out of that whole routine? Yeah. I think I'll stay in this forever, um, as long as I have a partner that works away. Um, and I can manipulate my schedule to kind of be around his schedule. So, right. I'm not committed to a set um, schedule of shifts. Mm -hmm. So I can go in and book like 10 days off, a month off, whatever I need off to correspond with his work. So I just fill my schedule up when he's not around. And then I take days off when he's off. I guess we started to touch on like the mental toll of it, which will, I think we'll go back to, but then the physical toll of the casual shifts, yeah, nighttime, daytime, having yeah. that routine messed up. How long do you think you can do that for if not mm -hmm. out of choice, but just like physically? Yeah. This last year, I've been working strictly night shifts. So it's actually been a year as of November that I've only done nights. I haven't worked a day in a year, a day shift. So um, that's taken a toll on like my physical and mental health. I am doing this by choice. You make mm -hmm. a little bit more money. And I feel like I just have like a bit more time mm. to do things working night shifts. Um, but then the flip side of that is you're exhausted. You're chronically coming off night shift. You're eating habits like I eat all throughout the night. So I'm not hungry during the day to flip over you're like constantly hungry at night not hungry during the daytime your bowel routine right you know you're pooping at all hours of the night yeah it's hard and like not seeing the sun so especially in the winter time you're working all night it's dark you're sleeping all day when it's light and then you're going back to work and it's dark whoa yeah is there room in the system to not have that there is and like so as casual like i'm doing this i'm purposely choosing to work night shift mm -hmm. and that's that's by choice i could purposely just work day shift a night shift, you have some incentive. You make more money. I feel like by doing night shift where you make a little bit more money, I don't have to pick up quite as much. I don't have to right. work as much. But the reason why I haven't gotten a line is in on my specific unit, they're only offering full-time lines. So that's like full-time 12-hour shifts. Um, and right now with our healthcare system, no one's getting vacation. You know, days off are hard like to come by when you're, you need to offer a wedding or like a certain event. So Right now I have control over my schedule mm -hmm. and I can decide if I need to take this day off, this day off. So I have that control being casual, having a permanent position. You don't have that. So there's like risks, um, like benefits and like, yeah, it'd be great to have like a consistent schedule, but then on the flip side, I can take off for however long I want. It's kind of entrepreneurial in a way. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I have control, but then there's no guarantee that you're going to get every shift that you need or that you want being casual. So you open your availability up to say like, I can work seven days a week night shift. So you might get like two shifts, one off, two on, one off, but you're trying to fill a quote of hours to make a right. decent paycheck. Right. Yeah. Right. Take me through like what a regular night shift is like and yeah, as a, as a delivery nurse. Yeah. So being a labor and delivery nurse, um, we're high risk center. So we see all preterm births um, in the city and like surrounding areas um, under 32 weeks. So I'm a little bit tainted um, with my perspective of mm -hmm. labor and delivery just because we see such complications and such like um, sick moms, but a regular shift. So coming on shift, you can either be on the floor. So in the labor room, um, you can be in triage or you can be on our antepartum unit, which are um, sick pregnant moms that have to stay in the hospital for, for some sort of reason. So you can get placed in any of those three areas. Every know coming in where you're going to be placed, it's up to the charge nurse. And then you just kind of take it from there. So if you're in a labor room, you know, your patient could be laboring at any stage of labor, triage, people come and go. It's just kind of like an emergency center for, for people that are pregnant. And then our antepartum unit, it's more kind of structured as like an inpatient unit. So mm -hmm. people are there overnight. They're there for a long period of time. But you don't know where you're going until you get on shift, which is kind of fun because you never know what to expect. Is there one that you prefer? They're all so different. I love triage because you never know who's walking in the door and you never know what they're coming in with. You're on your feet. You're go, go, go. You're communicating with doctors. You're really relying on the other staff in that triage to get you through. And like, it's all teamwork. It's a very team based. And I love working as a team. Labor and delivery. You're like kind of um, in a room by yourself. You're in this like little, like it feels like you're on an island because you're in there one-to-one -one with a patient and you have lots of support from different nurses and doctors, but you're just one-to-one -one with that patient. 
So that's always one-to-one. Yeah. When you're on labor and delivery, um, it's usually one-to-one because you never know what's going to happen. In the States, they don't do one-to-one necessarily, but I'm really thankful for in Canada that we do one-to-one because I think everyone going through labor at whatever stage they are in labor deserves that quality of care of being one-to-one and having that support from a nurse that their attention is on you. So what's that room like? Because I'm just imagining you're in like an armchair sitting there. Um, Being like, hey, good job. Keep breathing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It's my style of nursing is like very relaxed. Like the lights are off. We're kind of going at the pace of the patient, just like taking it one step at a time. You're like, it's very physical. It's very like you need to be very present with the patient. And every patient's different. So you don't really know Mm. what kind of personality you're going to get. You're just there providing physical support, emotional support, you know, words of encouragement. You're monitoring the baby. You're monitoring like mom's vitals. You're listening to the baby. You're supporting the partner like you're this like jack of all trades like in this room they really like the patient and the partner really look at you to kind of guide them through this experience how are you building that rapport because like you said like they're coming in at different levels of yeah. uh, delivery you know they could be like dilated like one centimeter or like or fully dilated about to have a baby right so yeah. is it like are you go to like is there a preamble or how do you build that sometimes it's just like you just fly by the seat of your pants like Say like induction. So sometimes you can bring people in for an induction to, um, for different reasons and you have that time to speak and, and to build that rapport. But then you have some people coming in eight, nine, 10 centimeters and you're just like, hey, I'm going to get you through this. And they just like really look and trust you and you just shower them with kindness and really show them that like you're there to help them have a nice safe delivery and people really put their trust in you. A lot of the words you're using like shower them with kindness and words of encouragement. Yeah. And- that sounds like really like you're focusing on that communication aspect. So totally. is that part of the training that you received or? I think every nurse kind of develops their own style. This like, that's like my style is like, that's what I'd want. Or like, that's how I'd want someone to treat my family member. Like, Hey, who are you? And how are you going to help me? And are you going to like be a nice person? And how I show people I'm going to be a nice person is by giving them compliments, like showering them with kindness and encouragement. Right. And not every nurse is like that. Like we have old crotchety nurses and we have really nice nurses. It sounds tough that there should be like some sort of streamlined totally communication process <laughs> or something. Yeah. Right. Because I, I feel like, yeah, if you're coming in as, as um, a pregnant patient and you're about to deliver, you're just like, there's, you're, you're right. You're the yeah. focal point. Yeah. You're, I'm looking at my delivery nurse. She's in the room with me. It's like, yeah. how are we, how are we getting through this? Yeah. How are you going to help me? What's it like when a patient comes in with a delivery plan and that kind of stuff? I feel like yeah. that's a lot more popular now with access to totally. education. and It's good because it shows that people have put some thought into like what they want to get out of that experience and what's important to them, whether it's cultural or just preference. Sometimes people come in with like a binder, a sheet of paper. And when you have time, it's really nice to go through that with someone and show them how you can help them accomplish these things. Um, and then certain things that we can't accommodate and here's why so just Mm. communication like what can we help you with what can't we do and here's how we can help you get through this i want to get your take on birth plans and i guess people coming in with uh, an idea of how they want the delivery process to go and there's so many stories online about you know it not going that way and and obviously it's such a fluid and dynamic and traumatic process of delivery that it doesn't always go that way and i guess personal take on the differences and that come labor out. is so romanticized like we romanticize about um especially like delivery like through social media instagram movies people have this kind of romantic idea that baby's going to come out and everything's going to be great there's going to be no pain and the flip side of that is people hear horror stories or they have friends that have um, gone through something very traumatic. So people come in with all these different ideas, experiences, and labor is so gray. Mm. There's It's so beyond anyone's control. It's really, you just kind of respond to what's happening in the moment. Um, and I like to tell people, you know, sometimes things happen really quick and we don't have time to talk about it sometimes in that moment, but we will always talk about it after. Because there's so much that's beyond people's control. And a lot of people have a tough time with that because as like humans, we love to control things. And labor is so gray. And coming in with those expectations mm-hmm. and, and kind of assumptions of what your deliveries or what totally. it should look like. And yeah. I think also as um as as a mother coming in and it's like your first real life to life introduction with your child yeah. and, and your first like 
maybe a real activity as a mother too. So yeah. it's quite defining on your identity. Totally. Are you finding like you're thinking about that cognizantly as well? Yeah. 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 Cause like this, you know, people have been either trying for a long time um, or they've like, you know, they've made it through this nine months and they're here, they're ready to have their baby. And you feel this sense of responsibility to get these people through this. And you like, it really weighs on your shoulders when something happens or, you know, there's an emergency or people don't have the outcome that they want. And as a nurse, speaking like personally, I have such a hard time when things don't necessarily go mm-hmm. the way people want because you feel like you let the people down because they come in with this expectation or this idea of what they want. So I like to plant the seed now um, that I've had a couple years of experience on this unit of things happen fast. We don't always have control. I will always keep you in the loop, but you have to really kind of let go with some of this control that you come in and trust me and trust that I will try to get you through this the best as I can. And same with the healthcare team, that we will try to accomplish your goals as long as it's safe for you and safe for baby. And end of the day, priority, safe mom, safe baby. I think it's so hard when you're, it's really hard to put that responsibility on yourself as well. Yeah. And it's hard not to bring it home with you. You know, you like you leave after 12 hours of whatever kind of shift you have. And it's really hard sometimes to like let things go out the door and come home and be present when you get home, you know, because you're thinking about these situations or whatever happened at work and it affects your relationship with your loved one or how present you are during that day. Because sometimes you see really bad stuff at work and sometimes you see really happy things at work. Mm-hmm. But we tend to talk about the bad things more than the happy things. And you mentioned, so you're, you do a debrief then with the, the patients afterwards and their family. Yeah, yeah. I try to, like, as like my own kind of practice is communication debrief. Like if something happened, yes, we're going to talk about it because I don't want you to not talk about it. Go home and never have any closure into why this has happened. Mm-hmm. And that's not everyone does that, but a lot of people try to give that to their patients. Because everyone deserves that. Because, you know, not a lot of people have experience, especially in this field. And it, things can seem really scary when they happen really quick. And you lose that control over your body or, or whatever. What are some, like, point of moments that stand out in the debrief? Answering any questions that the patient and family might have. You know, and giving them, like, answers. Because people are like, why, why did this happen? Why did this happen? So you give them a little bit of closure. You give them some answers. Um, and then you're also kind of protecting the mom because with any delivery, moms are at risk of postpartum depression. But if something traumatic's happen and you don't talk about it, how's that going to affect the patient when they start to have memories or flashbacks in like a couple weeks, a couple months? I think that's just so important. It's kind of shocking that it's not standardized in a way. Totally. It's really hard to detach yourself from the outcome of the event and yeah. as, as, as the mother, as the pregnant patient yeah. to say, oh, you know, there was these complications and it's not my fault. Yeah. In one way or another, either consciously or subconsciously, you're like, what did I do yeah. that made this happen? Totally. And is there something that I could have done that would have changed the course of what happened? Yeah. So so I guess you're seeing these things, they're they're weighing on you heavily. And you're, you know, you're saying you you might this wasn't your word, but you might be jaded from the the process because yeah. you're you're working at a like level one trauma center. Yeah. Level one trauma center, and we're a level three, like a tertiary care um, facility for our NICU and our labor and delivery. Right. So you see kind of the worst of the worst, the, the tiniest of the tiniest babies, and you get slightly jaded and yeah. you start to have, you know, um, different thoughts or like you, you start to be kind of protect yourself or you, you start to think like, is there such thing as a nice delivery? like a straightforward, non-complicated delivery. And, you know, you start to see more friends in your life start to um, try and, and get pregnant. And, and you really have to catch yourself mm. and not say anything because you're so used to seeing all this bad stuff. And you know that there's really safe and good and healthy deliveries that do happen. But we just see such a spectrum at work and the sad and the bad stuff stays with you more than the good, unfortunately. How do you do that debrief with yourself or with the team when something kind of traumatic has happened or do you? Definitely try to at work. We just talk about it and it works really good to offer different resources if if people need to talk about it, but, or take days off. Personally, I like to exercise and my partner's very supportive. He's he's just a good listening um, person in general. My parents are too. Um, I find the best thing you can do is just kind of talk about it. And not bottle up those feelings or those emotions, well, the good and the bad, you know. Has there been stuff that's like really stayed with you or that you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, 
with labor and delivery, you see beautiful, healthy deliveries, you see everything in between, and then you see the opposite end, which is um, fetal deaths, miscarriages, kind of that um, component. And those are always very tough. Those always kind of stay with you. And I think I'll remember, like for the rest of my life, I'll always remember all the moms and babies I've had the honor of getting to be involved with their care. They never go away. You know, you're, I, I think I'll remember those people forever and those babies. And that's hard because that's, you're seeing people at their most vulnerable. You're seeing families at the worst situation, the saddest moments of their life. And you're there kind of as their rock, trying to get them through this experience. And you're just trying to be there for them. And that sometimes that's really hard to like show up and put all that weight on your shoulders mm-hmm. and get someone through the toughest couple of days of their life. What's it like? You have this traumatic delivery, traumatic yeah. event with this patient. Yeah. You've debriefed them and you're like, all right, you're in room four. Oh yeah. All the time. You know, that's the thing is there's constantly people coming in. There's always going to be deliveries. There's always going to be an ex patient. So you can have a situation, a really hard situation and you're next on the list to get another patient and you have to wipe away like those tears or that situation and put a smile on your face and go give the same level of care to someone right after that. And that can be really hard. And you never know what's going to happen with a patient in a room at a delivery. It's such a gray area of of health. You just never know what's going to happen. So you get really good at just kind of doing the best you can with what you have, communicating um, and just kind of going with the flow. Because nurses usually are type A and we usually like to have control on things. But this is an area that you just have to kind of let go of all that control because you can't control anything. Mm. You just have to respond to what's in front of you and kind of go with. And a lot of people come in with stress out to here. Yeah. And it's scary because there is, you know, if you don't understand or if you're not in the medical field or you like you come in and you don't know what to expect. You put all your trust into someone you've never met before, which is your nurses and your doctors. And that's scary. That loss of control. Mm-hmm. but you're just kind of there helping to facilitate and ears open. And I think half the time nursing is also just listening to people. Connecting like this loss of control or like giving control. Yeah. Um, something I was coming up on my research is that, uh, is like the part of the breath work Mm -hmm. these exhales and these like kind of like vocal exhales that people practice yeah to try to ground them and calm them and let go of the the pregnancy and and let it kind of happen yeah which sounds i I just can't even imagine you know you've like it's nine months or if if you're lucky it's nine months you know if 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 it's earlier or later or something and and you're like, okay, now I'm supposed to do nothing yeah. and and just vocally exhale. And that's yeah. kind of... And breathe with my contraction and yeah. move. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it seems like it's really part of the process of letting go, which yeah. is just... Breathing. Yeah. 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 And you're this little voice. Like labor hurts and people are scared of pain usually. Um, and people start to fear pain. And the best thing... and the really the biggest thing people have in their control is their breath work that's like during labor and then also during pushing it's different breath work yeah. um and it's very powerful when people can do it right it's very powerful and it's sometimes all people need to do to get through each contraction at a time is to breathe what what is it like during um labor and then during the the pushing yeah what's or i guess yeah can you like what, what does it look like and, yeah, yeah so like like laboring you know, people start to have contraction, you know, you just get them to focus on their breath. Breath in through your nose, out through your mouth, in and out until the contraction's gone. And to focus on that breath, relax their body, not to fear pain, to fear the contraction. You're just kind of giving them little mantras like they're breathing in and out, like you're strong, you can do this one contraction at a time, you're bringing baby down. So you're getting them through that. And then with pushing, there's something called open glottis and closed glottis pushing, which is a different type of breath work. Closed glottis is breathing in and then you're holding it and pushing. And then open as you're breathing in and then exhaling out. Mm. But it's all breath work. Which is already something that uh, we don't normally do in our day-to-day life, no. which is so important. No. I think it's a lot of holding breath. Totally. And so it's something like that. So in your control, if you're reminded of it or if you're like mindful of it, it's so powerful, but it's really easy 
to hold your breath or to fear something and just to forget to breathe. Mm-hmm. I, I think relinquishing yeah. control is an exhale. <sighs> Absolutely. Right. Breathing in and then just letting it go. Yeah. Yeah. Which, because if you breathe in and you hold. Yeah. You're holding on to the moment. You don't, yeah. the uncertainty of what's about and to that's come. that's all energy. Yeah. That's all energy that you're holding in. Yeah. That you could be using to like absorb the pain in a way. And to release, like to release it yeah. in and then release. And I, just even as I'm talking about this, I'm getting shivers of just like being like, oh yeah, let me just lean into the pain. The pain. Absolutely. No. Yeah. No, thank you. And that's like the most common reaction is like people fear pain. We don't like pain. Yeah. This is good pain. And you're reminding people of that. But some people, pain, they can, they can, t- people, females are amazing. Yeah. But everybody's different. And some people have a high pain tolerance or they can get into a state of mind that they can cope with this pain. Mm. And then some people can't. Uh, the more I learn about pregnancy and delivery and stuff like that, the more I'm like, huh, if it was up to me, and I had this mindset, I don't think there would be babies. Yeah. Like, yeah. like and what a, what a terrible or possibly terrible end to the ride and beginning of the journey. Like it's not, totally. you know, it's like you like this recurring theme of like, oh, the miracle of birth kind of yeah. thing. Like, and it's such a simple um, thing for, uh, you know, if you were in a very conventional relationship, male, woman, yeah. uh, for the for the male to just be like, yeah, you want to have a baby? Yeah, yeah. sure. Ooh. Yeah. And the, she's, he's like, all right, sounds great. Well, like, do this. Let's do it. And I think if you're the one who has to be pregnant and then you're like, okay, now I have to go through delivery. And then the more you think about how do you not think about how difficult it is? Totally. Um, yeah. Brutal. It's intense. Pregnancy, labor, and delivery, that's just like mind-boggling to yeah. me. Um, mind-boggling partly because like, whoa, this is fascinating, but also partly like, why did no one ever tell totally. me this? Or, you know, what, like, what is the stages of dilation? Because I think that always comes up. And as a guy, I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> so you have closed, a cervix that's closed. So it's right. not dilated at all. Um, and you have one to 10. Okay. So 10 centimeters is your cervix has gone. And you can start pushing if you're going to have a vaginal delivery. So you're gone out of the way. It's gone. The cervix is totally gone. It's no longer felt. Okay. The cervix disappears. Whoa. Yeah. So when you can feel cervix, so say you're four centimeters, that means you're four centimeters open, but there's still cervix around that needs to disappear. Zero opens one to 10. Yeah. Um, And there's early labor. So early labor is you're like one, two, three, like that. Um, and then active labor is about five centimeters. Right. But it depends. Have you had a baby before or have you had lots of babies before? So cervix means different things. Is it stretchy? How thick of, like, how thick is it? How far has baby come down? There's so many different things that happen in labor with cervix that opens. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things of like destigmatizing what, like, genitalia for men and women should look like totally. and then and then if you can start to have that conversation then it's also like hey everyone's like reproductive organs are going to be slightly different too exactly and their experience is going to be different as well yeah and uh, every that you, like that's exactly it. everyone's body's different and no one's body is the same no one dilates at the same rate no one comes in at the same dilation and everyone is different everyone is like well i'm this or i'm that and it's like well you're everyone's different we can't give you exact answers based on what your dilation is versus someone else right what your body is versus someone else and then so active labor you're in the room you're pushing active labor you're five centimeters right 10 centimeters your cervix is gone and you can start pushing oh so active labor is like it's like okay your cervix is like you're over you're five or over things are like your body's starting to transition it's like baby's coming down things are going right yeah Starting to get a little oxy yeah. release, that kind of stuff or something. I don't know. I'm just making it up. That was really good. <laughs> Thanks. Early labor too is like, you can be very uncomfortable in early right. labor. Um, something that we like the hospital offers in early labor when people come in, you know, really uncomfortable. Maybe they're only two centimeters. We give them something called morphine and gravel if they want it through a IM injection. And that kind of helps take the edge off. People can go home, labor a little bit, come back in a couple hours, Okay, which is nice. So you see people at all different stages of their labor experience yeah you have there was a, a few other things that i want to ask you about um in terms of like getting the baseline of what delivery is like epidurals what epidural 
Happy, happy durals. Happy durals. Happy durals. There, we actually the worldwide there was like a, a shortage of epidural um, catheters like like going in the back, and that was super. Um, unfortunate the last couple months you know people it was all over the news and people were worried like am i gonna get an epidural in labor um and for some people that's all they want for their pain control is i want an epidural Mm -hmm. um so we got through that so now there is no longer a worldwide shortage um but that caused a lot of anxiety and fear the last couple months right um which was really sad for patients that you know that's their end goal. That's like, that's what their pain control is going to be. That's the backstop measure, right? It's like, this has gotten brutal. Yeah. Is that kind of when it comes in? Because some people are, don't want to, some patients don't want it. Yeah. It's all, it's up to the patient. So there's three, like in terms of like medication um, interventions, relief for pain management that we can give in labor. There's Antinox gas, laughing gas. People can use that. It's with a contraction. It kind of takes the edge off. You breathe it in and out with the contraction, but it doesn't take all the pain away. It just kind of gets you through. It really gets you to focus on your breath. Some people absolutely rock labor with it. Then there's IV fentanyl. You can give, and this is like, not all the places have this um, this policy, but you can give eight doses, whatever the dose is, it's all weight-based of IV fentanyl throughout the course of labor. And then you have the epidural. Mm-hmm. And people can try all three. You could do a combination. People do antinox, they do fentanyl, or they might just jump to the epidural. Um but epidural is the best kind of form of pain relief that can be offered in labor. And everyone has a different threshold of pain. Some people come in, they're two centimeters, they want epidural. Some people, they can be 10 centimeters, they can get an epidural. There's no, the only time you can't get an epidural is if baby is about to come out. Mm-hmm. Like it was going to be imminent. But you can get an epidural whenever in labor. And that's just because it's tough to place it. And it would be like, if the baby's right there. It'd be quicker to have the baby than get the epidural. Right. You're going to yeah. have a little bit you're less pain sit. if you're, yeah, yeah. right. You'll well. sit on your baby's head. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so you have that pain management and then the dilation, so your, your like 10 centimeters yeah. cervix has disappeared. Um, it hasn't actually, this like it comes back. Yeah. It comes okay. <laughs> you have to, yeah, yeah, I have to ask these questions because one thing I didn't know that you told me in one of our conversations yeah. was the tearing. Yeah, the different degrees of tear. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that happen. Like your cervix has to to disappear. You have to dilate, and then the baby has to come down. So there's different stations in your pelvis that a baby has to come down. So sky high. If you think of your a woman's pelvis, so there's stations. So minus three, minus two, minus one, zero. Zero is like right here, mid pelvis, and then plus one, plus two, plus three, plus three. The baby's head is right there. Right. So babies also have to come down. And then your cervix has to like not only dilate, but it has to thin out. So at first it's super like chunky. It's like a centimeter. Right. And then it slowly has to thin. And then 100% of face means the cervix has totally thinned out. So it's paper thin, but then it has to dilate. Whoa. And then you have pain control. And then you have the position of baby. Right. So baby could be a little tilted to the side. So you call that like asynclitic. It could be looking left. It could be looking right. It could be looking sunny side up, which is it's facing, its back is pressing against um, the mom's kind of tailbone area. Mm. So then there's a the whole position of baby. And then you can maneuver the baby to some degree. Is that right? Or it's kind of like up to... Yeah. So nurses, like the best tool you have in your tool belt is positions, is like understanding mom's position and how that affects baby how that opens up the pelvis and that's like such an incredible tool actually it's, it's really cool i've really like focused my last year um on like maternal positions and how to like facilitate labor but doctors can help manually rotate baby if baby's looking kind of in a different direction as long as it's head down um so they call that a manual rotation that would have to be done by an ob um and then you have breach so that would be like bum first um and that's a whole nother like okay what yeah. is that so some doctors will deliver when babies are are bummed down but some doctors not ideal not ideal because you have a risk of head entrapment where the head gets kind of stuck on the pelvis during delivery a lot of doctors nowadays um it's automatic c-section okay if you're going into labor and that's the decision of the physician too yeah yeah and it depends if that physician um does breach deliveries or doesn't do breach deliveries there's always like a risk of the baby's head getting stuck so you know it's one thing to get the bum out but then it's like okay then the head has to come out i've actually never been in a breach delivery um my sister was a baby that was born breech, but she was also born premature so i think you know she just kind of slid out with her butt right yeah but we don't see it as as commonly as we used to right yeah 
You'll see one of the things that you talked about as well was um, like the umbilical cord around the neck. That's more common, right? And there's different, like um, it can be wrapped once, it can be wrapped twice. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can cause different complications during labor because it's it's tightening the cord, especially um, with a contraction. Um, And when patients are pushing, what that does um, to baby's heart rate. Right. Yeah. Right. And And sometimes it's known and sometimes it's not known. Oh, okay. Yeah. And how do you know? Like ultrasounds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Is there an ultrasound machine in the in every room then? No. So that would be like an ultrasound done um, at some point of like interpartum. But as long as it's not causing any like mass, um, like fetal heart rate D-cells or anything, then people can continue laboring, continue pushing. But sometimes um, babies don't like labor and sometimes it's because there's a cord wrapped around somewhere and babies have big dips in their heart rate. Um, and when they come out, you visualize where, where is that cord? Is it around their neck? Is it around their hand? Is it around their foot? Kind of what's going on. After they've come out. Yeah. Like when they come out, you're like, oh, there, that's where the cord was. You get like people get through labor. So, you know, you get, you have a delivery, you have a patient that comes in, they're pushing, they labor, they're fully dilated, they have a baby, but then there's all these complications that can happen after so different degrees of tearing, bleeding, Right. Depends where the tear is. Is it in their cervix? Is it on the perineum? Is it, you know, what kind of delivery method was used? Was it um, like a vacuum, forceps? Was it spontaneous vaginal, C-section? All the way is a full tear. So you can, there's like first, brutal. That's a fourth degree. So the fourth degree tear goes all the way to your bum and goes to the sphincter. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. That is unfortunate. Um, Does happen, but... Sometimes the doctors make a cut, an episiotomy, which directs the tear away from the bum. I see. Yeah. It's kind of like you you cut a piece of paper and then you rip it yeah. and that kind of, yeah. wow. Do you, is that a fear of a lot of kind of patients coming in being like tears and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Because people, that's like pain afterwards, right? That's like um, something they have to deal with after delivery. Yeah. That can take a long time depending kind of on the degree of tear where it is. So these these people that we see, you see them at all different stages of their their journey. Like um, in our triage now, you can see people up to two weeks postpartum. So they may come back with uh, infection, bleeding, mm. high blood pressure. So as this like nurse, um, you see people at kind of every stage of their experience. One thing that always just fascinates me about it, like you said, that we don't talk about it, we romanticize birth. I totally. think like the miracle of birth. Oh yeah. my gosh, I was there when my child was birth. Yeah. But we don't talk about, I think, like the patient's experience, the the mother's experience. Totally. Um, which is fascinating to me because there's this kind of obsession with what people look like when they're dying, you know, or, yeah. or I think like not obsession, but I guess that our culture has a more easy time talking about or depicting yeah um but what we don't really talk about is birth and we really talk more about the baby's experience the birth experience yeah but very few times do we talk about you know that post 10 centimeter dilation yeah mom is pushing you have those stereotypical like oh she was holding on to my hand so hard that it broke my you know blah 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 you are there seeing this person at the final stages of basically creating life a delivering life yeah what is that like it's pretty special like the first year or two that i was on this unit you know i'd like kind of choke up in a lot of my deliveries because you're it's such an emotional intimate experience you're with this um this couple and they've gotten to this point and you know they're so close in meeting this little one that they've they've created and it's so intense it's so exciting it's so everything um and you just see that emotion on their face now you know after being involved in a couple hundred deliveries you're a little bit more like desensitized to that or it doesn't Mm -hmm. affect you as much but it's still like so beautiful and and to see how excited people are for the most part when it's it's happy experiences um is really special it's very intimate Mm -hmm. very intense it's also very draining you know you get home and you're like oh whoa wow so is that why you're eating constantly throughout a shift? Just to like keep the blood glucose yeah, high? Yeah, just to keep her high. <laughs> I'm a big sugar addict. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So there's always like a candy in my pocket. Right. But you're also just go, go, go. Like 
you're positioning people, you're holding legs, you're, um, you know, people are, are epiduralized, they, their legs get really heavy because they're, um, there's some kind of sensations gone. So you're moving people and babies have big dips in their heart rate. The best tool you have in your tool belt is to reposition them just to see if baby, like if you put mom on her left side, will that like kind of jolt baby around? Maybe there was a cord that was getting pinched, move her to the other side, but it's very physical. Like you're always moving your body. Yeah. And moving the patient around. And moving the patient. Yeah. Um, workplace injuries on our unit are quite big, like shoulders, knees, elbows. Wow. Especially during emergencies. Cause when something, an emergency is happening on a labor and delivery floor, it's pretty bad. Um, so you're kind of doing everything very quick and you're not thinking about proper body mechanics. Right. There's training, but really when shit's hitting the fan, mm-hmm. you're not thinking about that. Yeah. I, I have this visual of this from this one time we chatted where you were like, on the bed with this person yeah like pushing the baby's head in or something <laughs> it was right about to come out it was about to come out yeah. but then there was like a cord wrapped around it yeah can, yeah can you walk through that the whole like thing like that's just like <laughs> that seems so intense where you're moving on the same bed together to go to yeah yeah um <laughs> lots of different kind of memories popped up into my head right there yeah you just like you kind of jump into action and you don't think twice about it because you're like my patient this baby like i'm gonna just do whatever i need to do right now to help the doctors to help the do- uh the patient the baby um whether that's holding baby's head in if the baby's about to come out um and the doctor's not there but nurses do deliveries all the time or you're unexpectedly delivering a baby before a doctor gets there and there's a cord wrapped around or there's a cord prolapse and the cord comes out um, before like the baby's ready to deliver and you need to run her to the OR and she's on her hands and knees and you're holding the baby's head up off of this cord as you're running to the OR. Like yeah. you're just kind of responding to what's happening in your environment. That's you, just, so cool. you just respond or like uh, a lady's pushing you and the baby's head is out but the shoulder gets stuck. So the shoulder's stuck. So that's something called shoulders. That's when you hoist, so you flatten the bed and you hoist the mom's legs back. You bring her knees to her, essentially her ears. Mm-hmm. And you have someone else in, in your room. You have a second set of hands. So that's another nurse that's just there to provide support to you. And they also hoist the other leg back. And if that still doesn't work, and this is as the doctor's trying to get that shoulder out by like rotating, trying to get in there, trying to get the shoulder out, um, you call out for more help and someone comes in and they do something called... Um, essentially like super pubic pressure on the baby. So on where the spine is, so you have to know where the back is um, on what side of the mom, the baby's back and you do pressure right on the back and that's to help pop baby out. And if that doesn't go well, like you only have, I've read about this a little bit in the past. Yeah. So I'm sorry if I'm wrong with anything here. If you only have a few minutes to do that. Yeah. Right. Cause the baby's suffocating. So it's like, it's a big emergency. So you call out, you call shoulders and everyone runs in if there's another doctor on the unit like everyone comes in to help you in that room so you just put your head out yell shoulders shoulders and you start timing so you start Mm. um you look at the clock at what time the shoulder gets stuck and so that's when nicu comes or someone's there to help you in case the baby needs to be resuscitated especially if it's a long shoulders the shoulder we had the shoulders for two minutes we had shoulders for 30 seconds you know you can you can tell people how long it's been so that kind of lets you understand like yep this was a bad shoulder baby's probably going to need some help or no it was 20 seconds it's so intense to think about the change in the like dynamic of this room yeah. that it can go from this patient waiting waiting okay two centimeters like three centimeters yeah. ups and downs epidural like yeah and then boom rapid to you know we have an emergency yeah or, or hey look baby just popped out isn't yeah. that incredible like and you never know what's going to happen. And it depends how many babies have this, has this person had? Is this their first delivery? Um, are they dilating fast? Are they not dilating at all? Is the amount of things that can happen so quick and the amount of like stressors that the environment can like rapidly develop is crazy. Like you can go from nothing, you know, it's nice and quiet to full on big emergency. And so when an emergency is happening, you're trying to communicate with the patient and their partner and family members and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you have those moments where you come off shift and you're like, ah, darn, like I just didn't, wasn't able to communicate that. I wish I did, or I wish I said something differently. I mean, like, cause it's happening so quick. And yeah. How do you want to deal with that? Or how do you train yourself with that? 
I feel like at that when my shift ends, I will like I will stay late or I will always like I always make it a priority to debrief. If something has happened really quick and we haven't talked about it, I will always talk about it with the person. I'll never not. Um, and if that person is put to sleep for whatever reason, say they go to the OR for um, whatever reason and they need to be put out under a general, I'll talk to the partner. The doctors are also really good at talking, but from a nursing perspective, I will always communicate why I did something or why this has happened just to make sure they have some closure because so many people, when you talk to them, will have these memories from an experience and they don't understand what happened. There's like this huge education gap where no one's kind of debriefed with them, explained anything and they don't know. Mm-hmm. So I like I always will close that loop before yeah. I leave or this is why I did this or I apologize for this because we had to do this for whatever reason. Has there been moments where you've talked to friends about their delivery and you've been able to kind of give them that relief? Yeah, friends, um, family, a couple of my friends are pregnant right now and they have lots of questions for me. Um, lots of fears. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people definitely like use you as a resource when they realize kind of what experience you have. Right. Like yeah. right now. Like right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to the desensitization aspect of yeah. it. When a friend is like super happy about their delivery yeah. and they're asking you questions and you're, you've come off the shift yeah, and it's been hard. Yeah what's that like or like has that changed the advice that you can give them or i feel like i don't tell i like i'm not honest with a lot of people like i won't tell people exactly what's happened at work like or you just smile and you're like oh yeah it's fine or yeah oh great that happened on your delivery that's awesome mm-hmm. you know you just kind of smile and, and nod your head i feel like i don't talk about work to my friends that much anymore especially right. because all my friends are childbearing age they're pregnant they're, they're having kids and I don't want to traumatize them or say a story that happened at work um, and scare them. That can make it more isolating for you though. Mm-hmm. 100%. That's why work, like all the, the phenomenal ladies that I work with are so supportive and they're so good. Like we have a really special um, unit and there's this level of understanding, especially in this field. Like people are so good at debriefing, at being there for each other. You know, something shitty happens at work. Someone's texting you, hey, are you okay? Hey, I heard this happened on your shift. Are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? The doctors are also like pretty good at being like, hey, do you need to talk about it? Do you need to debrief? Um, but sometimes there's no time mm-hmm. to debrief. It kind of depends on the day. Um, so my poor partner <laughs> gets to hear all about it and has no idea what I'm talking about. But really sometimes you just need someone to like listen to you. Right. And just to kind of offer you some love after a shitty, a shitty shift or, or whatever. Yeah. But I feel like people that work in healthcare get a little bit more than people that don't because they understand an emergency or they understand why something's stressful and how that affects a nurse. They understand how that plays into the day to day. Totally. And like how much that affects you and how hard that is or. The importance of having that team dynamic to be able to debrief because these are the yeah. people that not only are you collaborating with every day yeah that you're building that trust by being able to talk to them totally but these are also the people that really intimately know your job really well yeah and so they can they can understand you from a different perspective exactly yeah and they're really good at just listening because everyone's had great shifts and everyone has had really hard shifts i think one thing that in my research for this conversation was that i didn't realize was the trauma of birth one thing that's been an education for me was is going through these accounts of these births that are traumatic and really thinking about the amount of things that happens within five minutes, 10 minutes that spontaneously takes it to that extreme level. And then you think back on the physicality of the patient that's going through it, how it's just so tied to their body and their identity and the future of their parenthood and the beginning of it. And you start to realize, wow, this is quite a traumatic moment that will be with you forever and and akin to war and, and, you know, the trauma that you see that, that kind of heightened experience. And then one thing that I hadn't realized until talking to you now is, well, there's other people in that room and they're seeing it day in, day out. But it is that heightened thing that you're going through that uh, has this element to it that's so bittersweet and difficult, which is that it can also be so beautiful. Totally. And you just, it's like birth is a beautiful thing. Labor is a beautiful thing. You know, pregnancy, beautiful. But to the flip side of that, it can also be really tough. You never know what's going to happen. Um, and birth trauma is actually a huge thing right now. And more people are talking about um, birth trauma. There's a lot of actually good podcasts and um, mm. Instagram accounts of people that have gone through birth trauma and are trying to talk about it and to normalize 
that it's okay to talk about these things because everyone wants to talk about all the good that happens, but it's hard to talk about the bad, the trauma. Um, and that's where people need to talk about it the most and have the most resources and, and, and good support systems. But then also, you know, it's one thing for the woman to go through it, but then there's partners that see a different side of things mm-hmm. that aren't going through it, but they're not going through the labor experience, but they're witnessing their loved one yeah. in pain in an emergency and how that affects them you know, PTSD. And then you have the flip side of that for someone that goes through labor, postpartum depression. Are you seeing anyone that's coming back either specifically for postpartum depression? We don't have a huge interaction just because we only see people like if they do come back in triage, it's 14 kind of days postpartum. And we don't see a lot of people coming back for postpartum depression yet. Um, But if there's any, like we tell everybody, like it's it's good to talk to people. There's different people out there. There's different resources. If you start to feel sad, if anything happens, like talk about it, there's different resources, get help early. Um, and on the postpartum unit, there's social workers making sure that people, patients know that it's okay to talk to people. And it's okay to talk about this experience and to get help early. You know, if those feelings are coming up um, early to talk about it, because they can be really debilitating and you just try to show people that there are resources, but you never really know once you see someone and your your shift ends, you know, you don't really get any follow-up. Mm. I think that's the hardest part. You never see people again. You don't know how they are. You don't know how they're doing, like, at home, how things are going postpartum. You see them, and then you never see them again. Yeah. And I feel like it would be nice to have follow-up because you get so attached to your, pa- your patients, and you're in this intimate environment for 12 hours, and then nothing. You know, then you go home, and you're just like, whoa. Yeah. I wonder if they're okay. Even if it's a, like a monthly, hey. Yeah, just like, something, you know. Like a get together, like a little coffee brunch <laughs> of, nice? yeah. All the moms. Yeah, coming yeah. back and, and even for the moms to come and, and chat. And yeah, how neat that would be. I often tell my patients, I'm like, you can write me a letter if you want. Like, send me a photo of your baby, just address it to the hospital I work at. Like, I would love to know how you're doing. Has that ever happened? Yeah, it's happened once and it was... The most like emotional, best thing that's ever happened. It was after a twin loss. This mom lost her twins. Um, I was so worried about her. And I got a letter from her two months later. And it told me how she was doing. And it was very honest. And it was just such good closure to this like open, emotional kind of hole I had. Because I was so invested in how this lady was going to do. Devastating to have that like uh, what's you know, could be such a beautiful blessing of these two kids and then go through that. And what yeah. a, I guess, lovely thing for her to recognize your involvement in that really dark moment of her yeah. life, you know, and kind of that you were also there with her. And it was so special for her to be able to write that because I can't imagine how hard that would have been mm-hmm. for this this woman to do that and kind of to relive, yeah. um, you know, some of those memories and that experience with someone that was there during this awful time in her life, but she did it and it gave me such a sense of closure um, and that I knew that she was going to be okay. I think that's kind of been a reoccurring thing in, in our conversation is just like, let's like, we should talk about the things that are difficult mm-hmm. and we should talk about what happened and why we, why things happened and that it's okay that they happened. Yeah. It's, it's hard and it's difficult to go through and it's difficult to, to feel but that if we allow it to feel shameful yeah. or sit in the dark, um, it's, it's more poisonous and, and yeah. it kind of keeps itself within us. And your mind warps. Like if you don't talk about it and you don't debrief, whatever, whatever happens, your mind starts to, you know, it's like, did this happen or did this happen? You start to create different kind of memories in your, in your brain because you're trying to comprehend um, why did this happen? Why did they do this? So like, baseline communication like closed loop what are some things that you've seen that has been really successful that the partners have done or that you think more partners should know about to do some people bring notebooks and write down different times or different interventions or um things that happen so people remember it so they can look back and be like oh at this time this happened or this is why they did this and that's really good because they have a physical copy i also find like just talking to the partner just being like, hey, we're going to do this because of this, or this is why we did this. Like giving them kind of the same attention and debrief or explaining things if you have time beforehand really helps because then they understand and then you can rely later on. Questions come up from their partner, from the patient, be like, oh, they actually did this because of this. 
Right. So giving them some attention because it's really easy to get focused just on your patient and the baby, but you have to communicate with the other person that's in the room too, because they're seeing all of this from kind of this like third party perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Like what are some specific things that if you, you know, if you're talking to your friends who are about to go give birth yeah, and their partners and they're like, Hey, what can I do? Yeah. What would you tell them? I tell them, bring a notepad so you can write stuff down. Just try to try to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. A lot of times people want to like sit quietly kind of in the corner, but ask questions, be hands-on, like ask the nurse, what can I do? Um, Like, don't be afraid to kind of really get in there um, and be right next to the, the, the loved one, because so many people want to sit back and they feel like the nurses and doctors are kind of right next um, to that patient. But support person should be there too, because they're involved. They're involved in this story. Right. And yeah. they're part of it. And yeah. Just going into that room and saying, hey, I'd yeah. love to help out with yeah, anything. what can I do? Yeah. 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 You know, like, if hey, you need to move or. Totally. Yeah. And the best thing is like, hey, yeah, what can I do? Hey, nurse, like, I want to help you out. Be like, what can I do? And that's kind of awesome because then you realize, yeah, this person's in it. Like, they want to help me and I can utilize them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we talk about, like, yeah, I guess protecting your friends from these stories. Yeah. And obviously, I can understand why you want to do that. Yeah. But you're kind of in this, you know, just for the for the podcast or for the interview, you don't have any kids. I don't have any kids, no. Um. But you can't protect yourself from these stories. No, you have to talk about it. So how has that changed your perspective on birth and wanting children? And That's a great question. Um, the first two years seeing it, like I came from a medical unit, I came from a kidney transplant unit, and that is a very different um, type of nursing than this nursing is. And, you know, I wasn't too sure that I wanted kids, went into this uh, this area and no don't want kids. I don't want any of these potential complications to happen to me because holy smokes. Um, but now, you know, after being there a little bit longer, you have to remind yourself that healthy, normal deliveries exist. Mm. And it's really easy to get jaded and tainted and look at all the, the hard stuff and the bad stuff. But I think with time, I've softened up and eventually I do want kids and, and I do want to deliver in the hospital. I know that, you know, you kind of see what you do and do want, do and do not want. Um, but definitely at first I didn't want kids after seeing all this stuff. Yeah. And also it's really opened up my mind, um, and my eyes to infertility. I didn't realize, I, I don't know if I just wasn't aware of it, but so many people struggle with infertility. Um, and that now kind of is in the back of my head, my mind for friends and myself is just infertility is also a big thing. And I've seen so many people now that have struggled with infertility. I just, I don't know if I was just oblivious to it or just wasn't at the age where my friends and people around me were trying to have kids. And now I am, and now I'm just, I see it so much more and realize how common it is. I think it's something that is, again, so important to talk about. Yeah, it is. Because there's a lot of suffering that can happen with it. Yeah. When you're trying to conceive and uh, you can't for whatever reason, you know, whichever partner um, and for, you know, history anatomically, like whatever your medical history might be. Yeah. And there's so much suffering with it because I think there's a lot of shame with it. There is, of yeah. the, it's a fundamental thing that I, you know, as a, it's just personally speaking as a male, I should be able to to do this and as as i'm sure as like a as a woman you're like oh the motherhood of it the element of it what's wrong with my body if i can't you know um and like you said i think if you don't talk about these things they become this chaotic kind of storm inside your head in a way yeah that grows yeah yeah it's definitely opened my eyes to how common it is Mm -hmm. and how it should be talked about more because so many people don't talk about it and it's scary too. I think it is scary. once you decide, you're like, oh, okay, I want to have kids now. Yeah. And then you're like, well, oh, then wait, why yeah. can't? What if yeah, I can't? Exactly. Yeah. And you see a lot of people that have struggled with infertility issues um, and have gotten pregnant in different ways. And you see a lot of that hmm. um, where I work. And people sometimes try for years and years and years and get pregnant. And you're with them with that miracle baby. Like you, you said um, kind of before the miracle baby. And that is also so emotional. And you're, you're with them and they've finally got to this destination, this final point after years and years of trying. And that's pretty special. 
What's one thing you're grateful for to close this off? What am I? I'm grateful for um, amazing coworkers and a strong, supportive um, family and partner that show up for me when I need them, and I feel like I show up for them when they need me. And I work with a really special group of gals that make me want to go to work. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. You're the best. Oh, stop. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of Crisis and Victory. I wanted to give a special thank you to all the individuals who have supported the creation and development of this podcast over the last year. Uh, Thank you for listening to draft episodes, giving me your feedback and giving me thoughts on how best to create an environment that is comfortable and supportive for the guests. If you'd like to support the show, please follow it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And finally, here's a sneak peek of the next episode of Crisis and Victory. Thank you for listening. I hope you're well. You're telling me it's cancer, but you don't know what it is. Now I'm just sitting here like, am I going to fucking die? And they don't know what stage. They don't know this. They don't know that. So now I'm like, okay. And they roll me back into my like little room. And now I have to call my mom.